0: Well, this morning is uh, class number two in our new members class that, again, we're all doing together as a congregation that we might be reminded of these truths as well. And so last week we talked about the subject of church membership. I want to just briefly remind you what we talked about, add a couple of brief things, and then we're going to talk about a difficult subject called church discipline. Uh, Last week, we saw that if we're to understand what we mean by church membership, that we need a biblical understanding of the nature of the church. And uh, the church is the church universal. As we look in Scripture, there is one body, there is one church. Jesus died for His church, singular. He said, I will build my church, singular. There is one church, one bride of Christ, And that is the universal church, all who have placed their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We often call it the invisible church because it's the church as God truly sees it. He sees his church. He knows his people. He knows those who belong to him. And therefore, it's called the invisible church because we do not see all those who belong to him. But these are souls that have been saved by grace. Uh, Some who are here now, some who have already gone to be with the Lord. But then there is the local expression of the church. There are churches, plural, mentioned in the Bible. Churches in particular locations. Churches that then gather and assemble together that we might live out what God has called us to be as the people of God, as the called out ones, as the church of Jesus Christ. And so there is much in the Bible Regarding the visible church, the church gathered and assembled for worship, instruction, fellowship, proclamation of the gospel. Living out these truths with one another and encouraging and strengthening one another. And so we first need to understand that, that there is an invisible universal church, but then biblical Christianity is lived out in local assemblies as they gather and assemble together for the biblical purposes God has designed. So we described and defined membership in this way. Church membership is a formal, identifiable association with a particular local church for worship, fellowship, mutual edification, ministry, and accountability to the glory of God. By formal, we don't mean it's a formality, just signing a card, uh, just getting your name on a roll. But there's a formal process by which we receive members, and we have talked about that, how we ascertain, we'll talk about that in a little bit in a minute, how we ascertain whether or not those who want to join the visible church, as it is here at Grace Fellowship Church, uh, how we ascertain whether or not they have a credible profession of faith. So there's an established prescribed way that we believe is wise in receiving members um, into the church here, the local church at Grace Fellowship Church. It's an identifiable membership, recognizable. We know those who are members. We have those who indeed are counted among the members of Grace Fellowship Church. And not only do should we know who are members, identified as members of Grace, but, but even the world knows. Here are those who identify with the church, but with this particular local church. We call it an association, a relationship, a commitment, a covenant. We're committing together to certain biblical responsibilities to a particular local church. We're not bouncing around. We're not, uh, I think it was Spurgeon who called them bouncy ball Christians who bounced around from church to church. No, a particular local church for accountability, for fellowship, for encouragement, for mutual edification. By accountability, we mean that we're just helping one another keep the commitments that we have before God. We're helping one another obey the commands of God. And it's all to the glory of God. And so there's no hint in scripture of a person believing on the Lord Jesus Christ and being a part, therefore, of the universal church without voluntarily choosing to identify with the local visible church to glorify God with other believers according to the commands of scripture and so we saw that the biblical teaching on church discipline that we'll talk about more specifically today necessitates that we tell it to the church who's the church how do we identify who the church is church leadership and the teaching on church leadership necessitates an identifiable church membership. You're to obey your, your elders and submit to them. Hebrews 13, 7, Hebrews 13, 17. Well, who are your elders? Every elder in the universal church, every pastor in the universal church. No, it it's, requires a local church setting that you now are under their spiritual care. And to whom are we responsible? And we'll give an account to God for whom we care for. As pastors, well, we're to shepherd the flock of God among you, Peter said in 1 Peter 5 verse 2. I'm not a pastor of the universal church, but of this particular local church. And then the biblical teaching on mutual edification and fellowship together as we live together in fellowship, as we come together and exercise our spiritual gifts, we're to encourage one another in this local assembly that not only the universal church would grow to spiritual maturity, But local churches, as we use our spiritual gifts and minister to one another, we grow to spiritual maturity. Now, let me just briefly talk about some prerequisites. Please understand as I talk about these things, it's difficult for me because I'm given a very high-level, meaning just overview, bird's-eye view of some of these things that are meant not to be exhaustive, but to hopefully whet your appetite to study and understand these things more. But we need an understanding of the prerequisites of church membership. First, a person must be a believer. Now that may seem obvious, but that is not a universally held view. That everyone who is a member of a local church must be a believer. This is a Baptist distinctive. We believe in what has historically been called a regenerate Church membership, regenerate church membership. In other words, those received as members of a local church are to know, believe, and be giving evidence of regeneration, that they have been born again, that they have been saved by the grace of God. And so those who are baptized and received and identified as members of a local church should be those who have a credible profession of faith. There are not many things detrimental, worse, more detrimental to a local church than receiving knowingly or even unknowingly unbelievers as members of the congregation. Why would any church identify as members of a local church those who do not know Christ? Why would they bring into the life of the church knowingly unbelievers? If a church is careless about whom they receive into the life of the body through church membership, then how could they ever be careful to obey passages about removing people who are in unrepentant sin and who do not give evidence and fruit of faith and salvation? The church growth movement, uh, and really the whole topic generally of church growth, identifies people as churched and unchurched. And you, you see this. You might not hear that language as frequently anymore, but people are identified as churched and unchurched. And the goal is to have people be churched, which means they generally, they attend as they're attending church. And, and in some way, maybe involved in some way, but they're churched. But then they're the unchurched. And so the goal began, it becomes having people churched instead of having sinners repent and believe the gospel. And so the gospel's not the focus, but getting people into church. And that's why you have so many, not, not every so-called large church, mega church is this, but this is why you have so many so-called mega churches in which the focus is just getting people into the church, meaning just getting them to attend on a particular day or time and church them. But we're concerned about their souls. Do they know Christ savingly? Do they understand the gospel if they believe the gospel? And so the unsaved should be denied membership into the local church. And so it's written to our Constitution and bylaws that if upon examining their profession of faith that there is some reason why we do not believe that there's a credible profession of faith, maybe there's a lack of understanding of the gospel, which is necessary, a knowledge of the gospel in order to believe on Christ, then we can deny people membership at grace fellowship church our unity is in the gospel so that's where it all begins so that's why in the process of church membership we as pastors sit down with those who are pursuing church membership and again say explain to us what is the gospel what does the bible say about how god saves sinners and then i emphasize this because those who are going through this process when we sit down together, then we'll say, How did you come to know that and understand that and believe that? It's just very important. I know I'm being repetitive, but repetition is good to hear these things. So, must be a believer, must also be a baptized believer. In Acts 2, verse 41, it says, So then, those who had received his word as Peter preached on the day of Pentecost were baptized. And that day, there they were added about 3,000 souls. And so they had a number, identifiable, who believed, who were baptized, who were added to their number. So this is also evidence of an identifiable church membership. They knew who, who, who had believed on Christ. But in baptism, the believer professes his or her faith in Christ. And that baptism proclaim, proclaims certain spiritual truths. And the one being baptized is saying then to the local church, to other believers in the visible church, this assembly of believers, I too am a believer in the Lord Jesus. I too have trusted in Christ. And that takes place in the assembly of God's people. Now again, we'll get into this when I talk in November slash December about church membership, the ordinances, and then in particular in regard to applying that to children. But it's very important to understand that that certain things in the book of Acts, like on the day of Pentecost, are unique. They're the exception, not the rule. But as you see then the church maturing, growing, having shepherds of souls and elders as the apostles die, and, and you see a transition happening, then you see that that baptism often is occurring in the the, the assembly of among other believers, among the visible church. So they're identifying with that visible local church with certain responsibilities that they had to one another and accountability. And so baptism proclaims I'm not a lone Christian, but I'm fellowshipping with other believers and I desire your fellowship. I welcome your encouragement. Your instruction, your correction, your admonishment, should it be required. And so when someone professes faith in Christ before you and then is baptized in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, they do so before a local assembly and they say, I am among you, I identify as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they don't just walk out that day and then never show their face again. No, they're accountable to you, you to them, And so church membership requires believers who've been baptized. Now, let me turn our attention away from that subject to our remaining time on another subject that is a very difficult one, namely that of church discipline, church discipline. Now, again, it tells me right here that I have 30 minutes, um, but this is just going to be a period of time in which Uh, We're going to go a little bit over of our uh, Bible study time together, uh, because there's just so much to talk about, and we don't want to make the new member class into six months or a year. We want to just, again, cover these subjects on a very high-level, bird's-eye-view level. Church discipline. Here's another title we give to something that is representative of a number of passages in Scripture. And so we give it a title, but then we have to understand specific passages of Scripture. Let me read you some of those passages of Scripture that are under the umbrella of what we call church discipline. And then I'll explain it further. Just listen to some of these verses. Romans 16, verse 17. Now I urge you, brethren, keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learned and turn away from them galatians 6 1 another verse on what we would under the umbrella of church discipline but but a slightly different manner in what we're talking about in the focus brethren even if anyone is caught in any trespass you who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted So that's generally under the umbrella of church discipline, but you'll notice a difference. One is keep your eye on them and turn away from them. One is restore them in a spirit of gentleness. It depends on the situation as to what the response is. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition you receive from us. And then he goes on to say in 2 Thessalonians 3.14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Titus 3, verse 10, reject a factious man after a first and second warning. Or James 5, 19 and 20, my brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. I won't read the, the passage, but another passage just to allude to 1 Corinthians 5 verses 1 through 11 speaks of one who is in a very scandalous public sin that needed to be immediately removed from the local church. Removed from their midst, it says. And it doesn't mean just simply physically removing. It doesn't mean that at all. It means they're no longer identified as members of that local church. And he calls them a so-called brother. And the goal is that he might repent of his sin. But all these passages and verses are under the umbrella of what we call church church. Discipline. If a professing Christian errs in essential, sound, orthodox doctrine and continues or continues in sin without repentance, the consequences often include excommunication, removal from the local church. Now, let me have you turn to a passage I didn't read that is most commonly associated with this subject of church discipline, namely, Matthew chapter 18 Matthew chapter 18 beginning in verse 15 Matthew 18 beginning in verse 15 Now let me just point out before I read this verse this is this passage this is one passage under the subject of church discipline There is no one passage that tells us how we're to handle every situation of a professing Christian who is erring or straying from sound doctrine or sound living. Doctrine or or living in accordance with the word and the sound doctrine that we have in the scriptures. So there's not any one passage, but this is a very common passage that that often is applied. and, And it's important to understand this passage because it gives us some foundational things about what church discipline is. And here, let me just read the verses Uh, Matthew 18, verses 15 to 17. Again, one passage about this subject, church discipline. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you, so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So here we have a situation or or a passage of Scripture that speaks to a way to handle various sins in the body, unrepentant sins in the body. You'll notice just generally, and we'll walk through it in a moment, uh, that it begins with a brother going to a brother, a Christian to a Christian, a believer to a believer. But when you read other passages, there are some occasions in which that's not necessary. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, there was no need for individuals to go to this one. It was a public sin. They already had knowledge of it. It didn't need to be confirmed as it speaks of here. It was already confirmed. The person was unashamedly committing that sin. But in this particular case, it speaks of sometimes a need to go brother to brother, Christian to Christian and various steps to take to win your brother to seek his repentance and here it ends in letting this one be to you as a gentile and a tax collector in other words treating them as if they're unbelievers because they're acting like unbelievers but there are some verses on church discipline that say you still treat him as a brother he's still considered to be a christian while you're still seeking his repentance and instructing him and so again there's no monolithic one passage that describes what to do this is one thing that as a pastor you learn through the years is that you just can't have one little model of how this happens in every situation just like in parenting your children there's not just here's what you do exactly like this in every case in every situation in every correction it's exactly like this there are certain components of disciplining your children or correcting your children, instructing your children, but it's variously applied, depending on the situation, the child even often, the sin. So there is no monolithic, here's exactly the way it must happen. I say that because some people take Matthew 18 as a very wooden, this is how it always must be done, to the exclusion of other passages that would say, in certain cases, it's not handled exactly this way. But... This passage is very helpful to us because it helps us understand, I guess, the private nature sometimes of seeking the good of another brother who's strained to then the public nature of it. So having made those comments, let me just say some things about church discipline in general. When we think of discipline, we often think... Of negative things. It has a negative connotation, but we shouldn't think about it in that way. Discipline is good. There is self discipline. The Bible says, discipline yourselves for the purpose of godliness. That's a good thing. Uh, we need self discipline by the grace of God. And as we do that, as we discipline ourselves by grace and, and consistently with the word, then we grow in godliness. We discipline our children. We bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. That's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a necessary and a good thing. God disciplines us as his children because he loves us. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And God's discipline is sometimes we're erring, but everything God is doing in our lives is disciplining us for godliness in various ways that we would share in his holiness But the old writers, so to speak, would talk of formative discipline. These are things we call the means of grace, things that we do that form us into uh, the image of Christ, that help us be sanctified, formative discipline, that we are in the Word and reading and studying and meditating on, memorizing, hearing the Word of God, prayer, and worship, and those things that form us. this formative discipline. There are things that are publicly formative discipline as the word is proclaimed and taught. And as we, again, speak to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, and as we fellowship together and seek to encourage one another, it forms the body of Christ into the image of Christ. But then there is sometimes a need for what we call church discipline. Now, when you think of church discipline, umbrella, think sometimes of just... Relationships, how we strengthen and encourage one another, it sometimes means we need to correct one another. And it's not public, it's in personal relationships. But when we speak of church discipline, often what we mean is public church discipline. That sometimes when someone strays and errs, there's discipline that happens from God in our own lives and in relationships to with other believers to form us into the image of Christ, to help us to grow in sanctification. But sometimes if there's unrepentance, there's a need to then publicly share that with the congregation and and the church to act. And therefore, sometimes we speak of public corrective church discipline. Now it's become broad. It involves the whole church. And why would we do such a thing? When I just read those passages, you may say, why do those things? Well, there's a number of reasons, but let me say two reasons that are related to the love of God and the holiness of God. First, it's because of the love of God. And because God has loved us, we love one another. And therefore, we need to love one another enough to go to them, to go to an erring brother or sister in Christ. The motivation comes from love for that Strain believer, professing Christian. Strain from the truth in some way that is harmful or strain in practice. Their lives are an unrepentant sin in some way and we need to go after our brother because we love them. And so what you see in Matthew 15 or 18 and in other passages is it's really the motivation is love. But then there's the holiness of God that is forms our motivation. And from that I mean God is holy, 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 and we're to be holy, and his church is to be holy. And we want to, before a watching world, we want to show that our God is holy and that we are striving for holiness by his grace, that we might not dishonor his name, hallowed be his name. And so the purity of the church is at stake. And so one motivation, and it's not again monolithic, you know, as a pastor through the years, I, I have sought the spiritual good of a straying professing Christian because I love that Christian. But then there's also the motive of if if this is just overlooked, then this harms the purity of the church. This harms the name and the reputation of the church of Jesus Christ. And now watching world see someone who identifies with the church of Jesus Christ universal, but then particularly a local church, namely our church. And now they question the the purity of the church. And so a desire for a pure church is part of it. And so you read that in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, remove the leaven from among you. And he talks about how the leaven, there being a picture of sin, will spread if you're not careful throughout the whole lump and Paul is concerned for the purity of the church. And so there should be a zealousness for the believer's spiritual good, but there all should also be, be a zealousness for the purity of Christ's church, for the name of Christ, for the sake of Christ, for the witness of Christ's church to a world that is watching. And so there, there are various motivations. It's not just one, it's multiple. And so we can do those things at the same time. Seek the good of a person while also seeking the good and purity of a local church and the glory of God's name in the church, Christ's name in the church. So with some of those thoughts, let's let's walk through Matthew 18. Again, very quickly, this is going to be a very quick walking through what Jesus describes here that we put under the umbrella term as one of the passages on church discipline. Matthew 18, verse 15 says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you've won your brother. This is often what we speak of as step one. Now again, we don't always go brother to brother. Sometimes we... Can go directly and should go directly to the whole congregation. We've had scandalous sins in the past. There's been some occasions in which, yes, the pastors have knowledge of a particular scandalous sin, and we've called for a congregational meeting, and we need to immediately communicate to the congregation regarding that. Now, hopefully that's rare, and it has been. But here, we're speaking of a brother's sins, you see that brother straying in some way then you go to him privately, brother to brother. Now, if you have the King James, New King James, it says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault in private. And this has to do with a textual variant. Some of the manuscripts we have have, if your brother sins against you, and some don't have that phrase against you. And so this could be that Jesus is speaking about a personal offense against you that you need to go to that brother in private. But it could be a reference, depending on whether it's just if your brother sins, if you have knowledge of a particular sin in your brother's life, then you go and show him his fault. So it could be a personal offense against you. It could be an observable sin against God or another person. Either way. Jesus here says there are occasions where you need to go. You go to your brother. Now someone might say, well Proverbs 19 11 says, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is to his glory to overlook a transgression. And so why wouldn't we overlook the transgression? And and to be honest with you, most of the time we are overlooking transgressions. We we fall short of the glory of God, and we're growing in sanctification, and we're seeking to overlook one another's transgressions. Now, when do we not overlook it? I, I've given some reasons. Maybe I'll email this all out to you again, as a congregation, even. But I've, I've given some reasons why not to overlook. There, you know, to give us some direction on that. First, there are reasons related to the person sinning. When the person is caught in the sin. He's not evidencing progressive sanctification. He's, in the words of Galatians 6.1, he's caught in a trespass. He's caught there. You go to him, you help him. He's not growing in sanctification. Or if the sin is willful without regard to the holiness of God. For example, unruliness that I read in 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 6. Or 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 14 says, Admonish the unruly. And that speaks to all believers. We, if someone's manifesting what is biblically defined as unruliness, you don't overlook that. You go to that one who names the name of Christ. Or when the sin is of such a nature, it just can't be overlooked. Sexual immorality, drunkenness, those types of sins. You shouldn't overlook it. You should go to your brother. Or there could be reasons related to the person sinned against that you just shouldn't overlook it. When the the sin against you becomes a frequent temptation for anger for you and bitterness, then you need to go to your brother and seek reconciliation. You're having a hard time overlooking it. It's affecting your relationship. You're having difficulty fellowshipping with that person, serving God with that person. Then Don't overlook it. Go to the person, talk to them about that particular sin because it's affecting your fellowship. There are reasons related to the sin or the effect the sin has on others that would be a cause not to overlook it. In other words, this person's sin is now leading others astray. It's causing maybe disunity in the body, causing strife among the brethren, or it's a false teaching that is leading people astray. You don't overlook that, you go to the person because it's affecting others in the body of Christ or if the sin is affecting the testimony of the church and the proclamation of the gospel among unbelievers is casting serious doubts on the purity of the church and its witness and bringing public reproach on the name of Christ don't overlook that sin but go so we're seeking to overlook one another's sins that's wise where we'd be going to one another all the time. Uh, you think about the marriage relationship of a husband and wife. We, we often fall short, and it's evident in our homes. We're seeking to overlook one another's sins as we encourage one another to grow in holiness, and we see that happening. We're patient with one another. But there are times you simply should not overlook it, and you must go to your brother. And it says here, You show him his fault in private. Now, behind that translation, it's not a good translation right there. The the older NAS to the 1997 NAS, I forget the years right now off the top of my head, changes it from uh, basically reprove him in private to show him his fault. It's important to understand that the word behind this is to reprove. And it's the Greek word that means to convict. It's the word used of the Scriptures that they're profitable for correction or reproof, conviction. And so you go and you reprove him. You show him from the Scriptures. This isn't a matter of personal preference. Well, you know, I, I just think this is sin. Well, where is it? I don't know. I can't find it in the pages of Scripture. I just don't think it's sin. I mean, I think it's sin, and I think I need to go to him. No. When you go to someone, you need to be able to go with the Scriptures. And if you can't, then you don't go. It's not an issue of sin. And so you go and you show him, and and the benefit is, is you're showing from the Scriptures. 2 Timothy 3.16, the Scriptures are profitable for doctrine, for instruction. You instruct and for correction, I mean, excuse me, reproof or conviction, that word means, and you... You reprove them from the Scriptures, and then you correct them. You show them, here's what you put off, here's what you put on. Here's how, what repentance looks like, and then in practicing that, here's how you grow in sanctification. You're trained in righteousness. You do that from the Scriptures. And so you go and you do that, and it says here, in this case, you do it in private. Sometimes that takes place person to person. You do it privately. Now, often in this, we don't have this kind of fellowship because we say, I'm not going to do this. We refuse to do it. It's hard. Sometimes people think pastors enjoy this. (laughs) Sometimes people think pastors have an easy time doing this. No, we're tempted like you are to just say, I don't want that. Like to come and sing the hymns and and fellowship together and everything's good. This is hard, but but we must go. Jay Adams, the late J. Adams, once wrote this, and again, it stuck with me through the years. The one who goes, the one with the sore toes goes because he's the one who knows. And so sometimes we think, well, this person knows they're in sin. Maybe they don't. Maybe they're blinded to it. Maybe they don't see it. Maybe they don't know they've sinned against you in some way. Now, the one with the sore toes, <laughs> I've been sinned against, one well, of the sortos goes because he's the one who knows. You have knowledge of that. And so you go to your brother. And here Jesus speaks of going privately to win your brother. And again, this is that's why I think against you is important here. This is often a, a personal offense that we go to a brother and we seek peace among the brethren and peace in our relationships to the glory of God. So who's responsible to go? Well, if you know of a sin, you go. But if you've sinned, you also go. Jesus said, if you're presenting your offering at the altar and remember that your brother has something against you, you lay your your offering aside and you go and be reconciled to your brother. So the hope is, is that you're meeting each other on the way as we're obeying Scripture. But here Jesus' emphasis is on you seeking the good of that person. You must go. This is a part of of fellowship in the body of Christ. This is a part of loving one another. Now, we have to make sure we go with the the right attitude. There are those who think, well, I can't wait to go. I'm going to set them straight. No, that's not how you go. Some people do it like this. Well, I'll be glad to go as soon as I talk to some other people about it. That's not what Jesus says here. Some say, well, I love him too much to go, and that's a false love. Some say, who am I to go with this sin in my life? And the right response there is, well, then get the log out of your eye (laughs) so you can go. So how do you go? And again, I'm giving you a very bird's eye view of this. You go prayerfully. You ask for wisdom. God, give me compassion for my brother. Don't let me go in pride. Don't let me go... In any way other than love for him, being patient, and God examine my heart. We go reflectively. What do I mean about that? We go examining our own lives. In the words of Galatians 6, 1, you who are spiritual restore such a one. Am I one who is walking in the Spirit, filled with the Spirit? And I am one who is spiritual. I'm growing in sanctification so that I can help my brother in this area. I don't want to have a log in my eye and do more damage than good. You go lovingly. That's the motivation. That's what compels you to go. You're seeking to win your brother. But you go convincingly. Now, what do I mean by that? You convince them from the Scriptures. You go with the Word of God. And the goal is, again, to win your brother. And so it says in verse 15, if he listens to you, you've won your brother. And in many occasions, it's dropped right there. That's it. There's reconciliation. If it's a sin against you or the, the person has sinned and now they're growing. Now, this doesn't mean you have to fill it in with the rest of God's word. Jesus here isn't giving us um, a, a series of, of you know, a, an expanded volumes on exactly what happens sometimes it means galatians 6 1 needs to happen now you're restoring them to usefulness and helping them grow in godliness but the point is you've won your brother he's repented he sees his sin and now he's back on the path of obedience to god and you may come alongside him and help him further and discipling him in that but then jesus speaks to what if he doesn't listen to you and that's synonymous with he he's not hearing the word of god It's not that he's not listening to you, but he's not listening to you as you go and reprove him with the scriptures. He doesn't hear the word of God. And so step two in this case would be you take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. So here you take witnesses. In other words, the matter can't be dropped. There's not repentance. And so the scope widens. And now you bring in others in this situation. Here called witnesses. Now that comes from Deuteronomy 19.15, which says, A single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or or sin which he has committed. On the evidence of two or three witnesses, a matter shall be confirmed. So this is civil law in Israel, now applied to the life of the church. This is how the church is to be governed in certain situations. If a matter ultimately has to be brought to the congregation, there needs to be some confirmation that there's actually sin. And so witnesses serve for that purpose. They let the person in the unrepentant sin know the matter can't be dropped, this is serious, and the scope of the confrontation widens, and as a safeguard for all involved, these witnesses go and they confirm the matter. What does that mean? They confirm, first of all, is this really sin? And what is this brother going to this other brother about? What is he brought to him? And, and often needs to be confirmed. There could be a false accusation against the, the so-called sinning brother. So the witnesses confirm. No, this, this is actually sin. And there's actually sin taking place. And so at first, they're simply witnesses to the reproof, to the matter. But then in confirming the matter, that this is sin, and this brother has come with the Word of God to seek to win his brother, now they join in in calling this erring, sinning brother to repentance. Now these witnesses need to be spiritually mature, doctrinally sound, they're not just the people you think will back you up so to speak no these are need to be spiritually mature doctrinally sound brothers again I'm giving you a very birds eye view of this what if he doesn't listen to them what if that doesn't bring him to repentance step 3 tell it to the church if he refuses to listen to them verse 17 tell it to the church now we're talking about public corrective church discipline Before, we're talking about really what is a part of our fellowship in the body of Christ. As hard as it is, sometimes we need to go to one another to correct one another. But it may not go to the elders at that point. It just may be you and another brother. And then it may be bringing in another believer or two to to confirm the matter and to seek the repentance of the person. But here it definitely goes to the pastors, to the elders of a church. It says, tell it to the church. Now, what does this mean? Does that mean on a particular Sunday you raise your hand before we start at nine o'clock or ten thirty and say I have something I want to tell to the church? Well, obviously not. There's an orderly way to do this. We, we uh, here again, Jesus is not giving every particular way in which this is to be handled, but he's just saying there is a a, a public communication of these things to the church. It becomes a public church matter. Here is an erring brother. He's sinning. He's not listened. The brethren who've gone to him and so now it's told to the church. So an orderly way to do that is if the pastors don't know, of course you would inform the shepherds of souls and then they would of course confirm the matter as well and at an appropriate time they would bring that matter to the church. Now, what is communicated? Tell it to the church. Again, I'm giving you a very bird's eye view. Are all the details of the sin given? It depends on the situation. But generally the the practice is you identify in cate- biblical categories what the sin is. It's already been confirmed. It's not up to the congregation to say, well, now we all have to individually confirm this. That's what the witnesses serve to do. It's been confirmed. Now the elders are involved and they confirm the matter. Now they're communicating to the church enough so that then the church can go to them as well. And in particular, those who might know that individual more than others would particularly go and seek to win that brother and so the church now goes to the person and some people say what an unloving thing to do to now communicate this to the whole church but it tells the person the matter can't be dropped we love you and the purity of Christ's church is at stake here and so for these reasons you tell it to the church And so the church then going to this erring brother, if he listens to them, you've won your brother, that's understood here. But Jesus says, what if he doesn't? If he refuses to listen even to the church. At this point, the emphasis is, if a brother has gone and shown him from the scriptures his sin and he hasn't listened, if one or two more have confirmed the matter and they join in in pleading for his repentance and he won't listen, And then you tell it to the church and the church goes to this person and he won't listen. He won't even listen to the the whole church. Now here, tie this to what we talked about last week and first part of this week with church membership. He's a part of this local assembly. He's covenanted with this body of believers to fulfill certain biblical responsibilities And the need for fellowship and encouragement and accountability and correction when that's needful. And he won't listen. Now he's even violating those biblical responsibilities that he has to that local assembly that he's tied to and identified with. He won't even listen to the church. And the scope is so broad. His heart, the emphasis here, his heart is hardened. He won't even listen now that it's publicly communicated to the church and they're pleading for his repentance. Then here's how you're to treat him. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Those words at the time were synonymous with those who were just godless pagans who are unbelievers. And he's saying he's acting like an unbeliever and walking through these steps he won't listen so treat him as he's acting, as if he's an unbeliever. He's removed as a member of the church. He's We use the term excommunicated. Communicated comes from communion. And he is now excommunicated. He's not welcome to the table of the Lord that we will observe this evening as a part of the body of Christ in fellowship with God and with the body of Christ. He's treated as an unbeliever. And again, the goal is still that he might come to his senses and repent. But if he doesn't, he calls in the question whether he's a believer or not. And that's the example we have in 1 Corinthians 5, 1-11. Where now publicly it's brought to the church. He's to be removed from your midst. He's not considered an identifiable member of that local assembly and that's needful for his spiritual good but for the purity of the church as well. And so, in this last step, you still pray for, hope for his repentance, you mourn, you grieve, but now he's to be as to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, treated as an unbeliever. This is hard, but this is a part of what God has called us to do. Now, hopefully, public church discipline doesn't happen that often, but it's necessary for the spiritual health, so to speak, of a local church. J.L. Dagg, a Southern Baptist minister and theologian who lived from 1794 to 1884, wrote this in his book, Manual of Church Order. He says, it has been remarked that when discipline leaves the church, Christ goes with it. So last week I said, what constitutes a a true local church? And one of those things in the category of what constitutes a true local church is church discipline. For if a church will not do this, then eventually it ceases to be a church. Eventually it begins to lose the marks of a biblical church. You begin to have unregenerate church membership. Okay, they've strayed, they've erred from sound doctrine and gospel truths, but they're still members of the church. Or they've erred in practice and they're living in unrepentant sin, but they're still members of the church. And now you're receiving and keeping as identifiable members those who don't even walk in a manner consistent with the gospel. And this is what you have in the vast majority of what is called Christendom today the vast majority of what is called churches today, practicing these hard verses in in our relationships to one another in the local church is necessary for us to be the church. One of the reasons Ichabod can be written on the entrance of many churches is because churches and their pastors have forsaken the biblical teaching in this area by God's grace we don't want to do that now we're patient I haven't even addressed how much time is there between these steps that Jesus just gives one after the another after another again there's much wisdom there's much in the scripture to be considered of what's in between those steps and how long you plead with as a brother and as witnesses and then as a church there's patience involved, but it must be practice. And this is a part of our fellowship. This is a part of what we commit to. One of the things you'll commit to if you join Grace Fellowship Church is to submit to the discipline of the church should it ever be required. Well, that, That's not just you, that's me. That's the pastors and the deacons at this church. If we stray, you should come to us. And if we're unrepentant, unless we give dishonor to the name of Christ, we should be removed. Again, we covenant in these things together. Now, this isn't pleasant. Last week was more, oh, here's what we're called to do together as a visible church, as it gathers and assembles. And here's something that's not so encouraging, that we pray. It's not happened frequently, but... But yet at the same time, we know there's biblical teaching on this. We must, if we're going to be the church, practice these things regarding church discipline. So let's bow our heads together in prayer and pray concerning these things. Father, I pray for this subject that Lord, I've just addressed so quickly. And Lord, for some, maybe these things are not subjects they've considered very Frequently or thoroughly. Or maybe there have been churches they've been a part of where this has been practiced but not thoroughly biblically and there's been abuse in these areas and things that have happened that have brought dishonor to your name. And Lord, whatever the case, I pray that you would help us to be growing by understanding, Lord, this hard part of, of relationships Lord, we would prefer that there be no reason, no cause to go to one another and ultimately take a matter before the church. But Lord, we do the hard things for the sake of your church. It's your church that you're sanctifying. And this is one of the ways you sanctify your church. This is one of the ways that you sanctify us. This is one of the ways that you bring glory to your name on the earth and Lord, I pray that we would not be willing in our own lives for leaven, the leaven of sin to permeate our lives and lead us astray and dishonor your name. And I pray that we would not, Lord, also be willing to see the leaven of sin permeate this local church and dishonor your name and its reputation and its witness. Father, I pray we'd be very careful to walk with you and. Lord, walk in fellowship with one another that when we need to be corrected, we would humbly hear and receive your word. We pray all these things, that again, we would be the church as you've called us to be in the scriptures, all to the glory of our Savior who is head of his church. And it's in his name we pray, amen.